Thank you, Isaiah, for helping and sharing with that today, that wonderful tune about God through the book of Psalms and how we desire him. Well, this morning we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, and how the prophets and even the angels desired to look forward to this coming of Jesus Christ. Last time I was with you, a month ago, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 1 through 9, and we learned there about how these recipients of the letter, they were pockets of pilgrims, they were sojourning strangers throughout this area that we would now call Turkey, back then it was called Asia Minor, and so more specifically, you could refer to as areas such as Pontus and Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia. And they were sojourning there. And this reminds us that as they were exiles, they felt different than others around them, that they felt like they were rather distinct and perhaps even unusual or odd in some ways or different or strange. But it's a reminder that sometimes it's good not to fully fit in to a culture that's around us. If in very facets, various facets of that culture, uh, they are not living up to biblical um, ideas and biblical views, then sometimes we simply will not fit in, and sometimes that's not necessarily a bad thing. And thinking about this, I was thinking about uh, the little children's story, um, The Ugly Duckling. So if you've ever heard that story before, the story of The Ugly Duckling was about this supposed duck that didn't quite fit in with the rest of all the duck mates. He'd go floating around on the little lake there, but he seemed bigger than they did as he grew up and grew far more quickly than they did. He was a different color than they were, and he simply didn't seem like he fit in. He felt different. He felt a little strange, but of course we know the end of the story, and we'll be coming back to that at the end of the sermon even But we too must remember that our precious redemption does give us particular responsibilities that because we are distinct, it's because actually in God's grace, he has privileged us with a special salvation or a special redemption. And when I say it's special, it's nothing about us because we didn't merit it at all. It's not because we're amazing and we're special. It's because we are equally sinners as everyone else. We are equally deserving of God's wrath as everyone else. But if we are objects of God's mercy, of God's grace, because we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we do have this special salvation, this particular um, redemption, precious redemption even, in Jesus Christ. But along with that, along with that privilege, does come responsibilities. And so last time we ended at verse 9, and verse 9, it ends there by referring to receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so here we end with that purified faith that leads to salvation. He's going to call it precious. By the end of the chapter, we'll know more why it's precious because it's actually paid for with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But first of all, what he will tell us is that along with this precious redemption comes particular responsibilities. So the middle part of this chapter is going to give us some of the responsibilities that are based upon this precious faith and therefore precious redemption that we do have in Jesus Christ. But first, let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We think even as we've been singing this morning about these Christmas songs that celebrate the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who became incarnate for us. And Father, as we were singing here this morning, I was especially struck about the different verses that talked about the angels rejoicing at the birth of your son. 
Because as you already know, because you've given us our word and you already know what would happen in the sermon this morning because you were sovereign, you knew that we'd be talking about even angels anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ as the prophets foretold and as they tried to investigate what was coming, the angels even looked forward to the coming of your son, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so, Fathers, we are amazed about the preciousness of who he is and our salvation to him. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength to have this sobering hope and to be reverent for you, but also to manifest joy and love for others and be willing to be different for the sake of being a testimony for your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So as we're thinking about this idea of a precious redemption leading to a particular responsibility, start off with the redemption part. The prophecies led to our redemption, and we'll see there, first of all, the prophets investigated our redemption. Verse 10 says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. Of what salvation? What's the salvation of verse 9? The previous verse, remember verse 9 had said, that you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And of course, it is true that souls are saved through faith in Christ. In fact, some context we talk about soul winning. If you look later in 1 Peter chapter 3, it talks about how when the ark was there with Noah, the eight souls entered the ark and were saved. And sometimes the word soul is actually just a word that means the entirety of the human person even in that context in chapter 3. Obviously, it's not like Noah and his family, they, they chucked their bodies at the door and entered as souls into the ark. It means the entirety of who they are was saved through God. God's provision of the ark. And so when we talk about soul winning or souls being saved, we also remember that even the bodies eventually will be saved because of the resurrection of the body that is promised to us in the future. And based upon this salvation, what do we know about it? We know the prophets inquired and searched diligently. In the New Testament, there are two different words for the idea of inquiring. And one of them is used quite often. It's used of seeking God. It's used of searching the scriptures. But the second word for inquire is found only here in the entirety of the New Testament. So this is a special use, unusual use of this word. It's found only here. It's used elsewhere outside of the Bible of searching in a house or a tent or a city when you're trying to find something, when you're trying to look for something. So probably for many of us, a common example would be we lose our keys or a wallet. Or this morning for me, it was actually my reading glasses. So I was like, where did I last leave those? It's kind of hard to uh, read a sermon if you don't have your reading glasses to see what it is you're looking at. And so we're, we're trying to find something. It's that idea of searching carefully, of looking. When we hear the word inquire, we often think of like asking questions, and that's, that could be a part of it. But it's more the idea of searching intently. And so who are these prophets who are doing this? Well, these are the Old Testament prophets. And what is it they're doing? Who prophesied of the grace that would come unto you. That, that idea of the grace coming is a reference to the gracious one, Jesus Christ, who would give us the grace of redemption. My mind is taken to John chapter 1, I believe it's verse 18, where it says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Of course, there's grace in the Old Testament. I mean, the whole idea of rescuing the Israelites from Egypt is an act of God's grace. 
But the overall tenor of the Old Testament was focused upon the law of Moses with these commands, with penalties, etc. While in the case of the New Testament, focused through Jesus Christ, we have a far better understanding of God's amazing grace. And even the Old Testament believers were saved only by grace through faith, looking forward to the coming Messiah. Even they were, they were not saved by their own righteousness because none of us can be righteous enough. All of us are sinners before a holy God. And so they prophesied of the grace that would come unto you, verse 11, searching what or what manner of time. So this is going to answer what is it they're inquiring about or what is it that they're searching into? What is it that they're looking and delving deeply into? And the answer is twofold. What or what manner of time? Now, based upon your translation in English here this morning, it may say something like what person or time, or the sense of who, or what manner of time is coming. So we get the idea here that they're looking forward to, looking deeply, searching for who is the Messiah, and when he would come. Now, we know they're looking more than that because clearly in Matthew chapter 2, the chapter after the scripture reading this morning, when the Magi from the east come, we know that some leaders knew where he was coming because of the prophecy of Bethlehem Ephrata and unto you will be born, right, the Messiah. So they were looking also things like where, but where in a sense is a facet of what manner, right? What manner of coming would include the where of that. So they have all these questions in their mind, and it seems here that they're actually even investigating each other's writings. So these prophecies were given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and later prophets, as they're adding to the field of prophecy, are looking backward at previous prophets to see what they have said, and like, oh, wow, I have another piece to the puzzle. Let's put that in. Let's take this piece and put that in. And we know this actually happened. If on your own time, maybe this afternoon or this week, look up Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel 9 verse 2 tells us directly that Daniel investigated Jeremiah. So Daniel knew what Jeremiah had written, and Daniel's going to go back and read and study Jeremiah. So can you imagine, as they're adding new prophecies to the Messianic portrait, they start searching in the other prophecies that had already been given. Verse 11 goes on to say, The Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand. So now the, the prophets are testifying. It's a different word, obviously, than the word prophesying. They are prophets, they do prophesy, but they also testify. This is the idea of bearing witness. Although it says directly here, the Holy Spirit of Christ is testifying. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness through them when it or when he testified. So beforehand in the Old Testament prophets, both testaments were testifying or witnessing to Christ through the Spirit, through the Spirit and they're bearing witness or giving testimonies about Christ. And more specifically, the verse goes on to say, the sufferings of Christ. So what is it the Spirit's testifying about? He is testifying about the sufferings of Christ. And since it's Christ, through his Spirit, bearing witness to the prophets, let me repeat that phrase, Christ, through his Spirit, bearing witness through the prophets about the sufferings of the Christ, we've kind of come full circle. It's as if Jesus Christ is prophesying of his own sufferings looking in the future through his spirit, through the prophets. So he's bearing witness, prophesying through his spirit, through the prophets about himself. 
Is this amazing? It's a reminder to us that in the end, God is the one who's orchestrating all of this. He's putting all of it together. In this case, he's bearing witness himself of his own future sufferings through his prophets. But the verse doesn't end there. It goes on to say, and the glories that should follow. It doesn't end at the cross. There are further additions to the story about this coming Messiah. We can say there are other chapters to be told. And if, depending on your uh, translation there, it will refer to the glories, plural, that doesn't end with the cross. There are other glories to come. The resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation, the glorious return, the glorious reign of Christ. We are living with a, we have rather trusted in a living and exalted Savior, and he will usher in his kingdom and complete his plan. So there are glories that have already happened since the cross, such as the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of the right hand of the Father, and there are still glories that are yet to come. It's interesting that even in some of our Christmas carols, one that comes to mind is Joy to the World, it kind of jumps from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ because if you look carefully at what we're singing in Joy to the World, not all of it has happened yet. Not all of nature has been returned to its original intent, and Christ doesn't rule on earth in a literal reign on earth yet, and that is yet to come. So there are more glories yet to follow. Nevertheless, these prophets investigated our redemption. I was thinking of an illustration of this idea of investigating a redemption and one that seems rather fitting for this time of the year. Um, pertains to the fact when I was a young child, I, I forget how old this first happened, this tradition in the Hartog family, I want to say around 10 or so, that my parents began to let us open one present on December 13th. I don't remember the history of that, um, but we began to open, we were allowed to open one present on December 13th, and usually these were like stocking stuffer, like little small present. They would try to save the big one for the end. Um, so they would put the small presents under the tree, and they would allow us to choose one and to open it early on the 13th. Now, you can imagine a 10-year-old boy who has lots of curiosity about what it is he might be able to open up early. What we would do is we'd go under the tree, we'd shake the gift, we would hold the gift to see how much it might weigh. So we would lift it, we would shake it. And since confession is good for the soul, I must admit that at least on one year I took a razor to, <laughs> to the wrapping paper when my parents were away or sleeping or something and slit the tape of the wrapping to even peer inside to see what might be inside this gift. Now that was not good, that wasn't a, that's not what my parents intended to happen, but it does illustrate nevertheless this idea of looking deeply, investigating of trying to look at, search, inquire what this gift is. And it's a great illustration of what the prophets were doing, but in their case, in a good way, in a moral way. They are trying to investigate, delve deeply, search into this coming promised gift. So we could say with the analogy, you know, it's, it's November and Jeremiah is investigating. Now it's early December, Daniel's investigating and looking forward to what we would now call the Christmas gift, the gift of Jesus Christ who was given in grace for us, the one who was coming and who would suffer but then add these wondrous chapters of resurrection, ascension, and even yet to come, his glorious return and his glorious reign. So the prophets were investigating the salvation that we have. The verses continue, though, 
And then they will add that the prophets anticipated our redemption. The prophets anticipated our redemption. It's one thing. Let's say I kind of shake the, uh, shake the gift wrap gift. and Oh, you know what? It's a book. I don't like books, which is not true of myself personally. But as a librarian, it's kind of hard not to like books. But um, let's say it's something I don't want. Well, at that point, I've investigated it, but I'm no longer anticipating opening it. It's like, oh, I find that boring. So when the prophets investigated, they actually it aroused even more their interest in what was, what was to come. They were anticipating, they were looking forward to what was to come. In fact, in working on this uh, more since I had handed in the PowerPoints, really we could add the prophets and the angels anticipated our redemption because these verses are going to add that the angels also we're anticipating the redemption that is to come. Let's jump in at verse 12, though. It says in verse 12, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, so revelation here is the idea of making things known that were previously unknown. So there's new revelation coming as the prophets have more about Jesus Christ. The prophets' prophecies weren't for them alone, but for those who would later experience and hear Christ. So as it says here, but unto us they did minister or serve the things which are now reported unto you. So kind of this idea is that the prophets reported it. It won't happen till later, until the time of the apostles, and then the apostles will share it with others to a new community. So us, the apostle Peter, remember, is writing this. Those who heard and received the apostolic message, such as those early church plants across Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia. And eventually we could say to us, here in the sense of 21st century in Des Moines, Iowa, that we too have received the good news, the Christmas, the Noel accounts about Jesus Christ, and that we have received this good news. Here it's called the gospel. By them that have preached the gospel unto you, which is simply, literally, the good news. So to kind of reiterate all this, you have this laddering down approach. So the ladder at the top, you have the prophets. They share in anticipation what's coming beforehand. The apostles literally experienced it. Peter makes this clear in 2 Peter chapter 1. He was there at the transfiguration. He was there in the ministry of Christ. They shared it with the church plants in modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor back then. And from then, it's been passed on to people like us here in Des Moines in the 21st century. The verse goes on to say, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. It wasn't simply a human message. Even the telling of the message wasn't simply through human power. This was empowered by the Spirit himself who was given at Pentecost to empower and motivate them and instruct them in how to share the good news. And then we have that addition, which things the angels also desire to look into. That's why, in a sense, the outline should say, the prophets and the angels anticipated our redemption. The prophets weren't the only ones who desired to investigate. The angels did as well. The angels continued to desire, and notice here it says, even in the present tense, they continued to desire to look into these matters. And here the word desire is also a very strong word. The word desire is the idea of longing for, having a very strong interest they're desiring to do what? To look into, which has the idea of peering into something, peeking into it from the vantage point of an outsider. You're kind of stooping over, looking into it, or peering into it. 
And so from an outsider, it could be, you know, like you see something happen in the neighborhood outside, you open up the curtains of your house, you kind of peer into the events that are happening outside. Last night we had a, um, a leader party, Christmas party for our leaders. We work with the youth group at our church, and we had them over, and there were like three sheriff's cars that came uh, two houses down from our house, and kind of pull back the curtains, and you're kind of peering into seeing what's happening out there, and that's this idea here. We say, why is it that the angels are on the outside? Why does that verb to look into have this, this uh, connotation of on the outside? And it's because, to our knowledge, there is no plan of redemption for the angels, which is a reminder of how God's grace works. God's grace is not because we deserve it. So even though he gives us grace in Christ as humans, it's not because he had to. It's because he wanted to out of an overflow of his very nature. His nature is gracious and merciful. And he desires, therefore, to give us redemption. And to our knowledge, there is no redemption for the angels. So let's back up and remind ourselves how this worked. In the Garden of Eden, Satan had already fallen, right? Because Satan is there uh, through the means of the serpent tempting Eve, which means he already has an evil heart. He's already fallen. And when Satan fell, it seems like, based upon text New Testament, it was based upon pride. He thought he was amazing, even though he's a creature and not the creator. And he wanted to be above God. He wanted to be higher than God. So he's trying to put himself in a disordered fashion above God himself. And Satan falls. And it's pretty clear in Revelation 12 that Satan's not the only angel who fell. He took about a third of the angels with him when he fell. At that point, he's like, okay, I fell. I'm in rebellion against God. I'm going to be greater, better than God. A third of the angels fall. Victory number one. This is amazing. We're winning. And then he comes and he tempts Eve. And Eve falls. And then Adam falls. I would imagine in Satan's mind, he's like, victory number two. Humans, we're, we're cruising toward cosmological victory over the entire cosmos, right? This is amazing. But in God's sovereignty and, and God's plan from eternity past, actually, this is the beginning of the end of Satan. So well, how is that? It's because if only angels fell, angels don't procreate. Angels don't have little baby angels. So even contrary to what you think of cherub pictures, paintings from the Renaissance or something, angels don't have baby angels. They are a company, not a race, meaning every single angel was a special creation by God. Humans, though, are a race. God forms us in our mothers, in our mother's womb in Psalm 139, so he is obviously still sovereign over our formation. But humans procreate. And so we have new humans. And why is that important? Because Jesus Christ could not have entered the cosmos as an angel. There are no angels born. He can't enter as the creator into creation through the means of being an angel. But he can enter his creation through means of being a human because humans have babies. And so through the virgin birth that we celebrate at Christmas, the creator is entering the created realm with the intent of redeeming and restoring the creation which groans in agony until now. And eventually, when he returns and sets up the millennial kingdom and then wraps that up and hands over the kingdom of the Father, and then all of creation will be restored. We have the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem on earth. The very fact that Satan tempted Eve and then Adam fell 
was the means by which God's plan is unfolding to restore uh, creation. So God has always been in control. He has always been sovereign, even through all of this. And so we can sing with the angels that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I expect that if we are believers, we'll be able to help them to fill the courts of heaven and ring this glorious song of Noel, of Christmas, of what Christ did in grace in Jesus Christ, this precious redemption that we have. But when I sing redemption story, they will fold their wings, for angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. Angels are the outsiders looking in to the story of redemption that we get to enjoy. When I think of anticipation, what I think of there is often of um, premarital counseling and wedding couples. So my wife and I have had the privilege of doing premarital counseling with various couples. And if you know how that often works, it seems like, especially on the campus where I teach, when someone's engaged, and I know that we have some here this morning, that if you ask them, like, how many weeks or days or months, they, they know. Some of them even know, like, how many hours it is until they're getting married, right? So there's a strong sense of anticipation that we know how long it is until we are getting married. They are anticipating what is happening. So yes, they want to enjoy the privileges of being married and enjoying each other and starting a family and through God's grace, beginning a family that will glorify God. And so they know there is a privilege there of marriage and they're looking forward to it. They're anticipating it. But here's where the sermon turns. That yes, The prophets were investigating this precious redemption, this privilege. The prophets and the angels were anticipating it. They're looking forward to this privilege, this precious redemption in Christ. But with great privilege does come great responsibility, one could say. And so privileges lead to responsibilities. And just like there are two facets of that in the sense of the precious redemption, there are also two facets in this text about our particular responsibilities. And the first one is a sobering hope that because of what God did in Christ for us in redemption, we do have responsibilities, the first one being a sobering hope. Look at verse 13. Wherefore, or as one commentator says, therefore is a form that brings to all that Peter has written previously and comes to this. So based upon the great salvation that has been told in the early verses of this chapter, in verses 3 through 12, wherefore or therefore, gird up the loins of your mind would be a literal translation here. It's not the way we often talk today. It's a word picture. And in the ancient world, if you're going out farming, and so I think most of you realize that even men in the the Greco-Roman and Israel context of the time, they don't have what we call pants or slacks. They would have more like a robe-like attire. And so what some of them do, if they're going to go and do hard work out in the agricultural field, maybe it's dirty and muddy or something, they would take the lower part of the robe and they would kind of fold it up and then tuck it into like the belt area. And so they would be bringing up the robe and that would be referred to as girding up your loins. And what it pictures, therefore, is you're getting ready to do hard work. You're getting ready to do hard labor there in the field. You're tucking in the garment into the belt around your waist. It's like what we would say today, maybe roll up your sleeves because we're ready to go to work, right? We kind of roll up the sleeves and we're ready to go to work. Back then, they would talk about girding up your loins or tucking in the robe into the belt area. And then he adds, be sober, This idea elsewhere translated as be um, temperate or be self-controlled, be serious. 
Wayne Grudem says, Peter knows how easily Christians can lose their spiritual concentration through mental intoxication with the things of this world. He adds, we today might well consider the dangers presented by such inherently good things as career, possessions, recreation, reputation, friendships, scholarship, or authority, and realize we need to put all of this in the proper order of values. We need to be self-controlled. We need to be serious and sober as we think about serious things. And hope to the end, or let your hope rest fully, completely. So this is not just a wish. This is not simply a dream, but it is a resting, an establishing of our hope upon the sure object of our hope. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ, and therefore, when we say we anticipate things still, it's not like, well, I hope so, maybe it will happen. We anticipate because the prophecies of God do come true, and ultimately, they are grounded in the object of God's own character, and therefore, we hope to the end. And so I came up with a subpoint, a sobering hope, by combining the two phrases together, right? We're sober, we're self-controlled, and we have a hope to the end, kind of squish them together, and you end up with this particular responsibility of having a sobering hope. What does it look forward to? The next phrase says, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I thought the grace already came, that the prophets were looking forward to the grace that was in Christ, and obviously Christ already came. And I already quoted John 1.18, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And the answer is yes, they're both true. That in Jesus Christ in his first coming in the incarnation through the Virgin Mary there in Bethlehem, he does bring grace because he brings the outworking of the gospel itself. He dies on the cross. He utters, it is finished. And he's raised from the dead, showing that God, the Father, has accepted and vindicated Jesus Christ as the one who paid for all of our sins, made a complete satisfaction. And yet we also look forward to the coming grace when the same Savior will return as coming king, as ruling king. For the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what we have here is one has quipped, when the outlook is gloomy, the believer needs to try the up look. So you look at your context today, and maybe you very much feel like a sojourner, a pilgrim. You feel like you don't quite fit in in wider society at work or in your neighborhood or among extended family during the holidays. And, and maybe you, in situations, for example, this time of the year when they think, well, Christmas is just about getting gifts and having fun and having parties. And in your mind, you're like, no, that's not what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. It's about our precious redemption. Remember that during this time period when the outlook is difficult, try the uplook. Maybe for someone else here this morning, the outlook is hard because, frankly, the holidays are hard because of situations or events in your life or your life story. And so the outlook, even during a time for many people, a celebration can be hard that we have the uplook of the grace that is to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he will resurrect all believers. And that will be the means by which we'll be with them and with him together forever. And so we have this idea of a sobering hope. And both sides of that equation are important. Hope sounds like, you know, confidence, encouragement. The sobering part that reminds us that it is to be done in a serious way as we deal with serious things is not reckless. My mind was drawn to some athletic examples here. The first one there, this is the story of the kicker, 
Bell Gramatica. So he had just kicked a 43-yard field goal, this is a 2001, in the first quarter of the game. He jumps up in the air to celebrate, and he comes down on one knee and tears the ACL of his knee. He's out not only for the rest of the game, but for the rest of much of the season. A little bit reckless in his joyful celebration. Uh, the story here is of Kendris Morales. So he, he hit a, um, a home run. He's circling around, and as he comes across home plate, he stomps on home plate after walking off a grand slam. And in so, in so stomping, he injures himself as well, and so he has to be carted off. So kind of reckless celebration. Here's a third example here. Um, in this case, it's simply an Argentine soccer coach named Mauricio Pellegrino. And the sad part here is he's giving a high five to no one. It's just like to the air, like, wow, that was great. And in doing so, he threw out his arm so strongly, he threw out his shoulder, actually, while offering a celebratory high five uh, to no one in particular. I actually kind of know how that feels because... Ten days ago, I was e-biking to work. It's eight miles to work, and I've been biking this semester for fun and to save some money. And um, I forgot after the ice and snow that you also need to look at the sand that the trucks drop. And so I was cruising around. The e-bike only goes 19 miles an hour, but it's probably going 60 miles around a corner, and the whole bike just flips. I'm on the low side. I'm being dragged on the sand on the pavement, tore a big hole in my gloves, ripped up my leather coat, and uh, kind of strained my rotator cuff. It's kind of the worry here at this point. Um, and so this is what happens to him. He gets all excited, and he injures his shoulder because he was throwing a high five to no one. And then uh, finally here, uh, the, the most difficult story perhaps to hear, this is the newlywed Swiss Portuguese soccer player Paulo Diogo. And he's all excited. You can see early in the game, he's looking at his new wife uh, there in the stands, peering at her. Um, and then he scores a goal, and he's so excited. He tries to jump over the fence that separates the fans from the soccer players on the field. And he jumps up the fence, and he gives her a kiss, and he slides back down the fence. And he's a newlywed. He forgot he had a wedding ring on his finger. It slides across the fence and pulls off the skin, pulls off the finger. They end up amputating that. And so the good news is he's a football player. So, I mean, the, in the end, the fingers aren't that important to soccer players. And he still is a professional soccer player in the Swiss Super League. At least he had been even after that. The point, though, being sometimes in our joyousness, we can get reckless. We're not thinking. And so Peter is telling these exiles, these strangers and pilgrims across these areas of Asia Minor, yes, be joyous anticipate the coming grace of Jesus Christ in the second coming, but still do so with reverence and with awe and with a level of seriousness. This is not at all decline. The issue of being happy, there's nothing wrong with being happy as Christians and even more deeply being joyful as Christians, which would not falter based upon our context. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, being a testimony as Christians isn't a very strong one if we're dour and gloomy all the time, right? There's nothing wrong with joy. But we are to have joy in a manner that is sober, that doesn't distract also from being serious-minded about the very nature of the good news that brings us joy as well. We are to celebrate. And we know that joy is not bad because earlier this chapter referred to joy inexpressible. I preached through that last time I was here. It's so ineffable we can't fully explain it. But yet we balance that out with self-control. May we fulfill our particular responsibility with such a sober hope. The second facet of our particular responsibility is a reverent 
holiness, a reverent holiness. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, that is, submissive children obeying their heavenly Father, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts. This idea of fashioning is translated elsewhere as conforming. Probably the most famous example is Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which many of you might be able to quote. It says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is that same verb, don't be conformed, don't be fashioned, or as um, a more paraphrastic paraphrase uh, translation from the mid-19th century had, don't let the world stick you in its mold, right? It's this idea of don't be formed, fashioned by the world. Here, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts. These would be those desires that one had prior to faith in Christ that would be influencing and even controlling us in our sinful, selfish desires. Don't let those control you. Don't let those form you. Don't let those fashion you. When did that happen? In your ignorance. We were ignorant because we didn't know Christ. We didn't know the good news and how it applied to us. We didn't know his great salvation. We didn't know his precious redemption. Verse 15, though, has a strong contrast. But, it's a strong contrast, as he which has called you is holy. So don't be formed by the lust, the desires that unsaved, but as the one who has called you is holy, so a contrast between sinful desires now and holiness, even in the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer, the prayer the disciples were told to kind of think through and, and model, our Father who is in heaven, in the old version, hallowed or holy is your name. Our God is holy. Then he has the command, so be holy in all manner of conduct. If your translation has con conversation, like in the King James, um, in the Old English, that actually meant how you live one's life. It's your conduct. So be holy in your conduct, your purity and moral integrity in all of your conduct. Why? Verse 16, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. This command is already found in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Leviticus. In fact, if you uh, look through Leviticus chapter 11 and chapter 19 and 20, in those three chapters alone, you'll find it five times in those three chapters alone. The phrase, be holy for I am holy. It's called the holiness code of the book of Leviticus, that passage area in that book. Jesus also exhorted in the um, Sermon on the Mount, he exhorted, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is our call. Verse 17, and if you call on the Father, that is, if we address the Father in prayer, like we do, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. If you call on the Father who without respect to persons judges according to every person's work, God is fair, he has no favorites, James 1 says he is impartial. He will deal with everyone fairly in his own justice and holiness. Unbelievers at the great white throne, believers at the judgment seat of Christ. If that's all true, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So here we have kind of this addition then. All your conduct should be holy and all of the tenor and motivation should be one of fear or reverence, reverence at all 
times. It speaks of a healthy and holy reverence of God. It's not like we're hiding under a rock or hiding in a corner in the shadows afraid to come out. That's not what's meant by fear here. It's this idea of reverential awe that we understand who God is and the enormity of our own sin and therefore we are more understanding of the sinners around us and then the preciousness of God's gift of grace and redemption. All of that combined, God's character, our sin, God's grace, that leads to reverential awe. And so then we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exiles, which returns all the way back to verse one of our previous sermon together, where Peter called them strangers and pilgrims. They weren't supposed to fit in. This time of our sojourning is a time of exile. And all the basis here is that we are to be like our Heavenly Father. Isn't it like children often to want to be like their fathers? Whether it's tying a tie just like your father, or perhaps uh, you know, watching your father shave at the mirror when you're younger, and then beginning to think that your little peach fuzz needs to be shaved as well when you're a son with a father. Uh, riding a bike, or being a cowboy like the father. Playing a guitar instrument, or we could say mandolin or piano, um, like a father if your father plays, or accordion for that matter, being like a father. And then I, I thought this picture was a lovely little picture of the little boy trying to do wheelies like his father on the motorbike, and he's on his little tricycle there. And so you have that idea of wanting to be like a father is kind of inbuilt into what we are like. And Peter uses that idea of believers to be like our heavenly father who is holy. And out of reverent fear of him, we are to live our lives in holiness. Um, Edmund Clowney, a commentator, says, Christians are therefore called and set about living as strangers with a mission. They are ambassadors on earth, revering their Father who is in heaven. So we are strangers on a mission. We are pilgrims on a mission. And may we fulfill our particular mission as well. If you think through, did these early Christians living in Pontus, Bithynia, Asia, um, and those surrounding territories of Cappadocia, did they actually live up to this? Well, you may never, never have heard of the Epistle to Diognetus, but it is one of the books that's a part of the Apostolic Fathers, they're called. So these are second century Christian texts. It's a wonderful little text, and I'm just pulling out from chapter five here, and it says, Christians reside in the respective countries, but only as aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and put up with everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their home, and every home is a foreign land. They find themselves in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They spend their days on earth, but hold their citizenship in heaven. You kind of get the sense that they're torn. They're on earth, but they're different. They're exiles. They're strangers. They're pilgrims. Um, that text goes on to say, they obey the prescribed laws, but in their private lives they transcend the laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, yet by suffering death they are quickened to life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They are dishonored, yet made glorious in their very dishonor, slandered, yet vindicated. They repay calumny, or slander with blessings, and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers, and under the strokes they rejoice like men given, into, uh, given over to new life. The idea here is that they are different than everyone around us, but yet they live there. They reside there. They're citizens of the Roman Empire, but they're different than everyone else. Why? Because they're citizens of heaven first and foremost. 
And so, in conclusion, our precious redemption was investigated by the prophets. It was anticipated by the angels, we could add, as well. It's not only the prophets, but by the angels. And all of that privilege leads to responsibility. With precious redemption comes particular responsibilities, and Peter tells us two of them, a sobering hope and a reverent holiness. And we come full circle then, as we think about uh, that closing outline, we come full circle again to the ugly duckling. And in the story of the ugly duckling, as it ends, kill me, said the poor bird, and he bent his head down to the surface of the water and away to death. But what did he see there mirrored in the clear stream? He beheld his own image, and it was no longer the reflection of a clumsy, dirty, gray bird, ugly and offensive. He saw himself as a swan, a graceful and beautiful swan. Then he felt quite ashamed, and he hid his head under his wing, for he did not know what to do. He was so happy, and yet not at all proud. He had been persecuted and despised for all his ugliness, and now he heard them say that he was the most beautiful of all the birds. Then he rustled his feathers, curved his slender neck, and cried joyfully from the depths of his heart, I never dreamed of such happiness as this while I was an ugly duckling. Well, we also have a privileged status as God's children and along with that come accompanying responsibilities. But they're not mirrored in a lake somewhere. We don't go look into the water to see who we truly are. Our mirror is the word of God. And as we look into the mirror of God's word this morning, we see the wondrousness of the preciousness of redemption, of the grace that is in Christ, that was investigated by the prophets, was anticipated even by the angels. And yes, sometimes it seems like that we don't fit in. It seems we are different, and the reason is because we are different. And because we are different, object of God's grace, therefore we should act differently. So how about you this morning? Do you understand and appreciate and revel in your special redemption that is given out of God's grace and mercy, a salvation anticipated by the prophets and the angels? Do you understand and embrace and live out your particular responsibilities of a sobering hope? It's joyful, it's happy, it praises God, but it also knows that it's dealing with serious issues of God's character, our sin, and God's grace. And you live out a reverent holiness in all your conduct throughout all your, tem- your time of exile as sojourners and strangers and pilgrims on earth. This Christmas season, let's be different because we are different, objects of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatest gift of all, what your apostle, the apostle Paul said, was your indescribable gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that we might reflect that wondrousness to others during this holiday season. They might recognize that we are different through our conduct and through our tenor and through our joy, but also through our reverence and through our holiness. And we might have times of testimony before others because of what you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name, amen.